Hello. Um, today's scripture reading is from Acts 2, verses 1 through 8 in the CSB translation. If you have a Bible or a device, I encourage you to turn there. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Kelsey Blunier. My husband Derek and I have been coming to Crosspoint since 2020, and we became covenant members this past May. Let's hear God's word. When the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound, like that of a violent, rushing wind, came from heaven, and it filled the whole house where they were staying. They saw tongues like flames of fire that separated and rested on each one of them. Then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were Jew Jews staying in Jerusalem, devout people from every nation under heaven. When this sound occurred, a crowd came together and was confused because each one heard them speaking in his own language. They were astounded and amazed, saying, look, aren't these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that each of us can hear them in our own language? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Kelsey. If you have a Bible with you, uh, open it up to that passage. My name is Dave, I'm one of the pastors, and it's grateful to be alongside you uh, this morning. So we'll be in Acts, uh, Acts 2, looking at uh, verses 1 through uh, 13. A couple weeks ago, we started a series through the book of Acts. I encourage you to, if, as you miss a week, uh, to track along, to listen online, to watch online afterwards as we make our way through this book of the Bible. Do you remember one of those first times when someone made a promise to you and then broke it, didn't follow through on it, said this, it didn't come to pass, I know there were times for me growing up, such as the friends said, hey, I'm going to have you over, and then they talked to their parents, and it didn't come to pass. Or, hey, I promise I'm going to pick you on the kickball team, and then I'm thinking, it's like the sixth round of the draft, and you haven't picked me. Uh, I don't think that promise is coming to pass. Or when a girl had marked, yes, I like you, and a promise of affection for all of life, and it didn't happen. Praise Jesus, it didn't happen, by the way. But in the moment, it's crushing. As a husband and father, I sought to be a promise-keeping, godly man. I know I didn't bat a thousand on that. I know I've come up short. You do as well. At some point, I started to wisely understand the implications of the word, I promise, that phrase, and sought to only use it when I knew I'd follow through on that phrase. The, the phrases of, I promise, and I love you shouldn't be tossed around flippantly. A side note to those of you who might be in a dating relationship. Because these phrases imply and assume a follow-through, a commitment behind them. I have a friend in business, and he jokes that one of his strategies is to under-promise and over-deliver. That he'd rather do that than the opposite of over-promising and then under-delivering. That sounds wise to me. We can all think of moments in customer service where we thought, that didn't come to pass, that promise that you made to be within this. I was going to show up between 12 and 4, and it's like 4.15. I sat at home all that time. <laughs> we can all relate to the idea of broken promises because we are all people who have fallen short of the Lord's perfect glory. We live in a fallen world. The scriptures are a storyline of both a promise-breaking people born in need of grace, mercy, and help in time of need, you and me. And they're also a storyline of a faithful promise-keeping God whose sovereign plans are unfolding for the good of His created people and for His glory. 
Hebrews 10.23 says, Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, since he who promised is faithful. See, we can hold on to the gospel with abundant hope without wavering or doubting because of who our God is. And who is he? He is faithful. Hebrews 10.23. He's true. He's a promise-keeping covenant-keeping God. The Lord never promises and under-delivers. He never has to under-promise for fear of not delivering. The scriptures that we hold on our laps are a storyline, are a record of promises kept over and over and over. Here in Acts 2, we read of a promise kept. That's the Holy Spirit that the Lord spoke of and promised from Old Testament into New Testament. So going back to Old Testament, Joel 2, 28-32, Peter will quote later in this chapter that we'll look at next week. Joel is an Old Testament prophet, and there the Lord promises through the prophet that he will pour out his spirit on all humanity. Then we fast forward to the Gospels in the New Testament. Jesus, the Son of God, makes the same promise. For instance, John 14, 16, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. John 14, 26, but the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I've told you. Or Jesus said in John 16, 7, I'm telling you the truth. It is for your benefit that I go away. Because if I don't go away, the counselor will not come. If I go, I will send him to you. And then we get to Acts 1, verse 4, and Jesus continues to make that same promise to his disciples. He promises them that the Holy Spirit will come on them and they will be his witnesses, empowered by the Spirit to be his witnesses from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. And then Jesus ascends to heaven. The disciples do what Jesus commands them to do. They return to the city. They prayerfully, expectantly wait, united as his people. And they can wait with expectation because, again, our God is faithful. He's a promise-keeping God. What Jesus said would come to pass will come to pass. It will be fulfilled. And the Spirit of God will be poured out here in Acts 2. So be reminded, be encouraged, brothers and sisters that our God is faithful. No matter what season you're walking through, whether hardship or victory, suffering or success, or it's grief day in and day out, or maybe it's gain, loved ones, wherever we are at, whether this season, in the future, let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering since he who promised is faithful. So there's 10 days between the ascension of Jesus and the day of Pentecost. In the grand scheme of things, 10 days is not long at all. And yet you know the disciples who are gathered together, they're praying, they've been given a worldwide mission, a mission far beyond the scope that their little brains can get, their, can get around. They know they're in need of the Spirit, in need of help in time of need. And the words of Jesus to them in John 15 are ringing true. Jesus' words to them saying, apart from me, you can do nothing. And so in this context, they are continually united in prayer as they wait. Acts 2 describes the birth and beginning of the New Testament church. The age of the church has come, an age that is continuing in our day. And the spirit that is poured out here in Acts 2 is the same spirit that dwells in believers, all believers to this day, empowering us to live as new creations in Christ. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. Acts 2 describes a unique moment 
in the history of the church, the pouring out of the promised spirit, a promise to this day that we enjoy as his people. Verse 1 again, describing the, the setting. When the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place, the day of Pentecost. Pentecost was one of the three major feasts in Israel's annual calendar. Pentecost is held 50 days after Passover. Passover being another one of those major feasts. It was during Passover that the Passion Week of Jesus took place. His, his arrest, his betrayal, his betrayal, his arrest, his, the, the trial, the beatings, his crucifixion. And both of these feasts, Passover and Pentecost, involve a, pil a pilgrimage. So you had Jews from various lands and nations traveling to Jerusalem for these feasts. Jerusalem is packed as a result. And it's packed because the Lord is sovereignly strategic. Remember the commission that Jesus gave to his disciples in Matthew 28 and Acts 1, that the good news of what Jesus has done is to go to the ends of the earth. So here in these Passover and Pentecost moments, the nations have gathered. And Pentecost is a feast that celebrates the harvest, where the first fruits of the grain harvest are brought in. And so here in this moment, just like Jesus' death gave new meaning to Passover and the Passover lamb, here the birth of the church will give new meaning to Pentecost. Because the day of Pentecost in the life of the church celebrates harvest, the harvest of souls. We'll see thousands come to faith in Jesus in next week's text. Those thousands serving as the first fruits of the millions upon millions upon millions who will follow in faith and repentance over the next 2,000 years right up to the present day. The first fruits indicate the later fruits. And so the day of Pentecost reveals what the Lord will do over the course of history. So the disciples are all together in one place, around 120 of them. And then they experience three very visible manifestations, extraordinary manifestations of the presence and power of God pointing to the promise of God that is being fulfilled here. The first manifestation of the Spirit is wind. Verse 2, suddenly a sound like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven and it filled the whole house where they were staying. Throughout the Old Testament, wind is associated with, with God's life, His power. God breathed life into Adam. In Genesis, Exodus 10, Isaiah 11 refers to the Lord using wind to display His power living where we live we all understand the power of the wind and and this wind from heaven fills the whole house it's not partial it's all encompassing all 120 experience the wind not just the 11 or 12 the next manifestation of the spirit is fire In verse 3 they saw tongues like flames of fire that separated and rested on each one of them in the Old Testament, again, the Lord's power and presence are displayed through fire. Exodus 3, in the burning bush with Moses. Exodus uh, 24, in the pillar of fire leading the Israelites. Fire is not just power and presence. Fire is also a sign of God's holiness, His purity. In Matthew 3, 11, as John the Baptist is preparing the way for Jesus to arrive on the scene as the Savior of the world, he says this, I baptize you with water for repentance, but the one who is coming after me, Jesus, is more powerful than I. 
I'm not worthy to remove his sandals, Jesus' sandals. Jesus himself will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Fire is power. Fire refines. It purifies. Wind and fire. This whole Pentecost event seems out of the norm to us. It seems supernatural to us. Of course it does. Of course it does. We're reading the account of a moment in history where our eternal God chose to manifest himself in powerful ways to empower his people in a new way. Luke writes this account in a way to remind us that we're not worshiping some weak God. We're not trusting in a God who is unable or a God who is impersonal. No, we're worshiping, trusting in, and following the only true God, capital G God, the God who is all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present in this world, who is both eternal and near, who will conquer evil once and for all and comfort all who mourn. It's, it's eternal and near. So brothers and sisters, let this account stir up your trust in our God. Stir up your trust, stir up your your belief in Him, your worship of Him, your awareness that that the same Spirit that's poured out here in Acts 2 is given to you when you trust in Christ. In these manifestations, we are learning some things about the Spirit. The Spirit is power, life, pure, holy. The Spirit is given to all believers. The wind is all-encompassing. Here we see the, the flames of fire rested on each one individually. It's not just over Peter or John or Mary. It's, it's on all these believers who are gathered together in prayerful expectation. The same truth is talked about elsewhere in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Don't you yourselves know that you are God's temple and the Spirit of God lives in you? 1 Corinthians 12, 4-7. Now there are different gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different ministries, but the same Lord. And there are different activities, but the same God works all of them in each person. A manifestation of the Spirit is given to each person for the common good. 1 Peter 4.10, just as each one has received a gift, use it to serve others as good stewards of the very grace of God. Notice those phrases, each person, each one, same Spirit given for the common good in order to serve others. Wind fire, and then speech. Verse 4, we see the Spirit's power and presence displayed through speech. Then they're all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different tongues as the Spirit enabled them. This is not referring to the gift of tongues and interpretation, those gifts that are talked about in 1 Corinthians 14 that we looked at in the spring as we worked through that book. Rather, the Spirit is enabling the, the disciples here to speak in unlearned languages. In languages they didn't know ahead of time, but in languages that, the, that end up being able to be understood by the diverse crowd that's gathered because of all these visible and powerful manifestations of the, of the, of the Spirit. So here we are seeing, for example, the truth talked about in 1 Corinthians and 1 Peter that the Spirit is given for the common good. It wasn't just for the benefit of the 120 but those yet to respond to Jesus in faith and repentance. The Spirit's work in believers' lives is inward and most certainly outward. Now, we're going to take about a 10-minute back road here as we work our way through this passage, okay? 
We will make it back to the highway, I promise. But we're going to take a back road because I want, I want to look at this phrase in verse 4. They are all filled with the Holy Spirit. Help us get us, be reminded of who the Holy Spirit is and His work in our lives. The Holy Spirit did not come into existence in this Pentecost moment. The Spirit is eternal. The Spirit existed, for example, and is present in Genesis 1 even. The first three verses in Genesis 1 say this, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the, earth, covered the surface of the watery depths. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And so the Spirit has always existed. Similar to the truth that Jesus did not come into existence at Christmas time. Jesus was not created. He is creator. He has always existed because he's eternal. Colossians 1 gives some of the, 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 the most exalting language of who Jesus is to us. Verses 16 and 17, a, a snippet of what Paul writes there, says this, For everything was created by him, he's speaking of Jesus, in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him, Jesus, all things hold together. And so in the same way, the Spirit of God has always existed. And yet in the Old Testament, the Spirit was given to specific people, typically for specific tasks and typically for specific periods of time. Well, here in Pentecost, this is a new work. This is different. The, the Spirit is not just given temporarily to followers of Jesus, but permanently now. We'll see the Spirit poured out here in, on believing Jews in Acts 2, believing Samaritans in Acts, 10, or Acts 8, believing Gentiles in Acts 10, because again, God's heart is for the nations. Now the Spirit is, is not given to specific people, but to all who repent and trust in Jesus. The Spirit is not given temporarily to Christians, but permanently. Then they're all filled with the Holy Spirit. Filled with the Holy Spirit. Referring to the indwelling of the Spirit in our lives as believers permanently. Listen to these three, these three verses and notice the, the verb seal being used. Ephesians 1.13 In Him you were also sealed with the, Holy, with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. Or 2 Corinthians 1.22, He has also put His seal on us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a down payment. Ephesians 4.30, And don't grieve God's Holy Spirit. You were sealed by Him for the day of redemption. Sealed with the Spirit. Think of an old-time letter with the wax melted upon the envelope to seal it closed. That seal wasn't broken until it reached its final destination and so believers have been sealed with the spirit until the day of redemption the day that we are with jesus face to face enjoying his presence unhindered by the presence of sin suffering and brokenness no more grief no more tears simply joy in the lord in his presence filled with the holy spirit now if you're familiar with the bible that phrase might make you think of ephesians 5 where Paul, the writer of that letter, exhorts Christians to be filled with the Spirit instead of getting drunk with wine. So while these phrases are similar, they are referring to two different truths. It's important that we draw a distinction 
about them as we look at this passage. So Acts 2 here at Pentecost is referring to the indwelling of the Spirit in all believers once for all. A person receives the Spirit at the moment they repent and believe in Jesus, trusting in Him for the forgiveness of their sin. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 would say that the bodies of believers are now the temples of the Holy Spirit who is in us. That the Lord Jesus has paid the price for our sin in full. We've been redeemed, purchased back from the power of sin, and now we are not our own. Our bodies, our lives belong to the Lord. Our bodies are under new management, new leadership, new ownership. We are now temples of the Holy Spirit. What Paul is talking about in Ephesians 5 and Galatians 5 is, what, is that because our bodies and lives now belong to the Lord, we've been indwelled by the Spirit. As a result, we are to be led by, filled with, walk by the Spirit. New ownership of our, of our lives mean, means new direction for our lives. A new way of life that reflects and glorifies the one who's purchased us by his body and his blood. So what Paul means in Ephesians 5, to be filled with the Spirit, is more about asking Christians, is your life being led by the Spirit? Not, is the Spirit in you? Rather, is your heart, your daily way of life submitted to, do you yield to the Spirit's control and empowerment and leadership in your life? He dwells in you, so do you yield to His control? If you're from Roanoke, you are well aware of a yield sign, right? They're everywhere. Those of us in other towns, we treat stop signs like yield signs sometimes. But a yield sign is, no, no, go ahead. I'll follow you. You go first. I'll yield to you. So as a, as a believer, do we yield to the Spirit? Do we follow? Listen to what Paul writes in Ephesians 5, verses 15 through 21. In this passage, I believe we get some ideas of what actions that would hinder us from being filled with or led by the Spirit. And please see, we want the Spirit to lead. We want the Spirit to be in control of our lives. We want to be under new ownership and we want to be led in a new way. We do not want to be led. We'd all agree in old creation ways that our flesh took us. We want to walk in a new way because the Spirit that we see here in Acts 2 is a spirit that is life and power, holy and pure. The spirit is for our good. So Ephesians 5, 15 through 21, to, to see that phrase filled with the spirit in its context, Paul writes this. Pay careful attention then to how you walk, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of the time because the days are evil. So don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. And don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled with filled by the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making music with your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. So in there, I see five actions that, that Christians who have the Spirit indwelling inside of them, where we can grieve or quench the Spirit's leadership and control. So from verse 15, it's when we yield to foolish or unwise living rather than walking in the wisdom of the Lord and His Word. From verse 18, when we yield to being controlled by an earthly substance 
rather than, rather than the Spirit. So we run to alcohol, we run to marijuana, we run to drugs, we run to food, because that ultimately rules over us, rather than the Spirit ruling over us. These are examples of actions that we, fall, that we, we can fall into that hinders the Spirit's leading in our lives. From verse 19, when we yield to isolated living, apart from life in the body of Christ, we grieve the Spirit. We quench His work in us. We end up missing out on the Spirit's good and transforming work in us as we speak to one another truth and sing with one another truth. From verse 20, when we yield to grumbling, a complaining attitude, it hinders us from being led by and filled by the Spirit because ultimately we are grumbling when we do that, we are like the Israelites of the Old Testament, declaring, God, I don't trust you. I don't trust you anymore. I trust in myself. This is the way of the Israelite. I don't trust that you're good or able or able to satisfy, able to provide. From verse 21, when we yield to self-exalting pride, we grieve the Spirit. When we are unwilling to let another brother or sister in Christ speak the truth and love to us or defer or submit to one another. We are saying, ah, I'll be on the throne of my life. You have no say. I'm not going to receive that truth and love. When we do that, the, we grieve the Spirit. So when the charge to be filled with the Spirit in, in Ephesians 5, it is less about calling out to the Lord, saying, give me more of your Spirit. I need your Spirit. I don't have enough. Yes, you do. Yes, I do. Every believer has been given manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. It's less about, I need more. It's more about calling out to the Lord, opening my hand, saying, here am I. I yield my life to you. Lead my life. And not just at our conversion to Christ, but brothers and sisters, this is the ongoing posture for every believer of Jesus. Yes, at our conversion. Lord, I'm done living for me. I want to live for you. You are the one who laid down your life, took it back up on the third day. You have granted me new life, redeemed me back. I'm going to live for you at our conversion. Yes, that's that moment. And every moment after. Sometimes, sadly, we have this logic that, well, I surrendered a lot to the Lord early in my faith. I mean, like, I gave up a lot. And now, X amount of years in, I'm on cruise control because I'm far better than what I was. I'm not walking in some of those things, but, and we hit cruise control. We settle into a comfort zone saying, I'm good. And we start to grieve the spirit and we drift and we get lukewarm. I've been there. I bet you have. And some of you are there right now. Brothers and sisters, may we, may we not follow in the pattern of the Israelites who rejoiced in worshipful gratitude that they'd been delivered from the enemy and saw the miraculous power of the Holy Spirit, of the, of, of the Lord breaking open the Red Sea and walking over on dry land, and then soon after began worshiping the things of this earth and began grumbling about how the Lord was leading them, that, well, you're providing for us, but not in the way we want. May we not follow in the, in the way of the Israelites. May there be a sweet spirit of repentance among us, asking the Lord to fan into flame the Spirit's control in our lives. Okay, we're back on the highway. Verse 4. 
Then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak in different tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Verse 5, so now there were Jews staying in Jerusalem, devout people from every nation under heaven. When the sound occurred, a crowd came together and was confused because each one heard them speaking in his own language. They were astounded and amazed, saying, look, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that each, each of us can hear them in our own native language? crowd gathers because, again, the Lord is sovereignly strategic. Jerusalem is packed with Jews from the nations, people who speak a variety of languages, and all these pilgrims have descended upon Jerusalem are amazed about how these Galileans are speaking their language, and Galileans is not a term of endearment. It is like, how are these backwoods country folk speaking our native language? How are they, as commentator Daryl Bach writes, exhibiting this surprising array of linguistic expertise? They're Galileans. They do not have linguistic expertise. But the Lord has always been in the business of using ordinary people in extraordinary ways for His glory because it reveals His glory. Ordinary people indwelt by the Spirit, being led by the Spirit on a mission to, to the nations. It's the story of Acts 2. It's the story of the last 2,000 years. Verses 9 through 11, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those who live in Mesopotamia, in Judea, in Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the magnificent acts of God in our own tongues. So, so up on the screen, you'll see a map that, about how far these various people have traveled to Jerusalem for this feast of Pentecost. Acts 1.8 is starting to come to pass because the Lord is faithful. The gospel is for every tribe and tongue. It crosses ethnic lines and socioeconomic lines, geopolitical lines, and the crowd that's gathered here, hearing the 120 declare the magnificent acts of God in their own languages. They're hearing truth like, like Psalm 145, verses 3 through 9, in their own languages. Spirit-empowered, simple Galileans declare the Lord is great and is highly praised. His greatness is unsearchable. One generation will declare your works to the next and will proclaim your mighty acts. I will speak of your splendor and glorious majesty and your wondrous works. They will proclaim the power of your awe-inspiring acts and I will declare your greatness. They will give a testimony of your great goodness and will joyfully sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and great in faithful love. The Lord is good to everyone. His compassion rests on all he has made. And the, this declaration is going out in all these languages. And then in verses 12 and 13, we see two responses of the gathered crowd. They were all astounded and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But some sneered and said they're drunk on new wine. So two responses. One is seeking. Still have, they still have questions. They're, they're curious. They're astounded. They're perplexed, but, but they are leaning in. The other response is that of the scoffer. They're already writing this whole thing off. They're just assuming these disciples are drunk, day drinking, in the morning. It's just drunken gibberish going on. Seeking or scoffing. And some of you have yet to repent and believe in Jesus. You're, you're not here like Joel talked about. You're, you're not here watching online by accident, I can assure you of that. I want to encourage you to be seeking the Lord. 
If you're prone to scoffing, ask the Lord to open your eyes and your ears to Him. The prophet Isaiah writes, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call to Him while He's near. Loved ones, as we return to singing, let's call to the Lord for He is not far off. He's not far off. He's not hard to find. He's present. He's near. He's faithful to save and give us new life. When we call out to Him, the good news of Jesus was never intended to stay in an upper room of 120. It's spilling out from day one, moment one. It was always intended to go out because the Son of God did not remain dead in the tomb. He did, his body is not decaying, but He rose from the dead. He's reigning and ruling, one day returning. The good news always goes out. And the promised Spirit has, has come to fill all believers, to empower us for daily life. A daily life that would reflect and reveal Jesus to the world, starting with those closest to us. Father, you are faithful throughout all generations. You promised the Spirit would come. The Spirit has come, and we are changed as a result. We are never the same. We praise, we praise you that that in you there is life and power. You've imparted that life and power to our lives through your Spirit, permanently sealed until the day of redemption. Thank you for your purifying presence, your resurrection power dwelling in these, these temples of ours. Help us as your people to be led by and walk in step with the Spirit. Give us a growing humility and trust that yields to the Spirit's good and loving leadership of our lives. We repent of foolish living. We repent of turning to temporary earthly things to try to draw lasting eternal power or life from. We repent from living isolated lives apart from community with one another. We repent of the grumbling and complaining attitudes that question your goodness. We repent of the self-exalting pride that our flesh is prone to. We yield to you, Holy Spirit, in this moment and in the days ahead. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, since he who promised is faithful. Thank you, Father, Son, and Spirit. You are faithful, you are good, and in light of your grace, we hold fast to you. In light of who you are, we hold fast to you, and we are grateful that you hold fast to us. And we can rest and we can worship you in your presence. We pray this in your name. Amen. Revelation 7 says this. Acts 2 to this moment, someday in the future. After this I looked and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, they were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne, and along with the elders and the four living creatures, they fell face down before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength to our God forever and ever. Amen. And we live in between these two moments. So let us be found faithful, because he who calls us is faithful, and he's good.